Well, do take a copy of God's Word nearby and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, if you will. 2 Corinthians. Grateful to Jason Brown for uh, preaching God's Word uh, to you last week in my absence. And just a little quick preview of what's coming next. For two Sundays after this, uh, Morris Bean, another one of our elders, will be uh, preaching two messages from the book of Jude. And then on the last Sunday of this month, I believe it's the last Sunday of this month, we'll begin a series through the book of Romans. And so that's coming up. Uh, looking forward to the way that God will minister to, uh, to us through uh, that portion of God's word. Today, we're going to wrap up the series we've been doing most of the summer called Words of Life, where we've been looking really at scenes in the life of Jesus and the apostles related to how they engage with unbelief around them and how they speak of the gospel and the kingdom to those who are not yet uh, yielded to it and don't yet belong to him. And so we've been kind of looking at these scenes and then trying to glean principles and exhortations about how we might be more faithful in preaching uh, the gospel uh, in our own culture and our own day. Uh, so today what we're going to do is a little bit different. In wrapping up the series, we're not looking so much at a, as, at a scene in the life of Jesus or the apostles. We're going to look at some particular exhortations from the Apostle Paul in this letter, 2 Corinthians, uh, that I think will be really uh, instructive and helpful for us to kind of, in how we think about the role of the church and the role of individual Christ followers in bearing witness to the good news of the gospel. And, uh, and so... Uh, we'll, we'll take a little bit different approach today, but I trust that it will bear fruit in the hands of our God. So the, the main uh, thrust of the message, where, where we're going to draw the principles from that I want to highlight for you, will all be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But we need to get a little bit of a, a context. So the, the verses before that, beginning in chapter 3, verse 12, are just sort of running up to that paragraph that I really want to focus on. So just a little bit of of context for our understanding. Uh, back in verses 7 through 11 of, uh, of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul has been highlighting the greater glory of the new covenant compared to the fading glory of the old, which he said was being brought to an end back in verse 7. So what Christ has introduced in its place, right, the old covenant with national Israel, what Christ has introduced in its place in the new covenant is superior and even more glorious than what preceded it, preceded it. That's what he's been saying. And that brings us to verse 12. And so I'm going to read for you verses 12 through 18. And just to get uh, the ground underneath our feet before we look at chapter 4. So. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, they read the Old Covenant. When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So verses 12 through 18 that we just read are based on the premise that the gospel of Christ and the ministry of new covenant believers are superior in glory and surpassing in hope to what Israel had received under the old covenant. Now he speaks here of, of when Moses went up the mountain, Mount Sinai, to speak to God and receive the law from him. And, and when Moses came back down the mountain, his face was shining with the radiance that terrified the people. And so he had to put a veil over his face to conceal the glory of God, as it were, that, were, that was shining from his face. In a sense, they were blinded by this veil over Moses' face from seeing God in his glory. So he's saying that the people of Israel as a nation, as a people, are still blinded to the glory of God because they're not looking at his word through the lens of Christ. So in verse 16, he says, when one turns to the Lord, that is to Jesus, the veil is removed. So if you approach the word of God, the law of God, through the lens of the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, then the veil, that blindness that covers the glory of God is removed and you can see the glory of God in Christ. And so he says here, a veil is, uh, remains over the hearts of the Israelites. They read the law without seeing its fulfillment in Christ, and thus they are blinded to the central realities to which the law pointed all along. And the only way for the veil of unbelief to be lifted from the heart is to see God's word and ways through Christ. That's what he's saying here. Christ is the central interpretive aspect of all of God's word leading up to this point. So all of the old covenant, all of the law point to Christ. And if you would look through Christ as the fulfillment, then the glory of God in the gospel would be seen. And he even points to this as the, the means by which personal transformation comes. Look at what he says again in verse 18. We all, now speaking of, of the church, of believers, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. That is the image of God. He's made us in his image. Our sin has marred and distorted and muted that image. And in Christ, we're, that image is being restored and, and renewed. And so we are transformed as we behold the glory of God through Christ. And so... Uh, there, there's this emerging theme I want you to notice, and you'll see it throughout the verses in chapter 4 as well that we look at. There's this emerging theme of the glory of God in Christ and people being either blinded to it or having their eyes opened 
to see it. So the glory of God in Christ is the, the goal. It's what should be seen and savored. And people either are blinded to it or are able to see it. And we'll come to understand why that is as we go along. And so Christians have come to trust in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all God's promises in his word. And with the veil removed, we are then able, by his work within us, to change. Beholding his glory, we are being transformed. Take heart here. Notice that the transformation is from one degree of glory to another. Transformation in a Christian's life is not usually instantaneous. It's not usually overnight. Now, you've probably heard and perhaps have a dramatic story where you were living in a certain worldly way and you came to faith in Christ and suddenly everything changed and it was just a night and day difference. I know that that happens at times. But more often than not, the work of sanctification, the work of God purifying us and making us more like him, transforming us into his image, happens bit by bit. Right? It happens incrementally. It happens from one degree of glory to another. Over years, as we behold the glory of God in Christ, as we avail ourselves day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, of the ordinary means of grace that Christ has given to his church as we gather with the saints, as we hear his word and we sing and pray and we receive the the supper and observe the ordinances that he's given us, as we go to his word privately and, and go to him in prayer on our own and as we share the gospel with unbelievers around us, all of these various ordinary means of his grace, as we day by day, month by month, year after year, submit ourselves and avail ourselves of these things, he transforms us bit by bit so don't be discouraged if you think i don't feel like i'm growing spiritually you'll get a better glimpse you'll get a better view of what god is doing in your life not if you look at last week or last month but if you consider who you were and how your life was five years ago ten years ago what what how have i grown what struggles did i used to have that don't feel so overwhelming anymore What desires did I wrestle with that no longer feel so compelling? What ways in which I'm pursuing God and his word now that that I didn't used to pursue so so vehemently? So think on the long-term kind of path, all right? Take the long view of the Christian life, and I think we'll be more encouraged as we go along. All right, so that all leads us up to the beginning of chapter 4 which is where we're going to draw four principles for our own work of evangelism and and bearing witness to the kingdom of God, recognizing that we are, the goal is to see the glory of God in Christ. And so our work in evangelism has to do with that key issue. We're trying to get unbelievers around us to have their eyes open, the veil lifted to see the glory of God in Christ. So let's read these verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then I'll draw out for you four principles that I think you'll see pretty plainly from these verses. 
Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Four principles. Number one, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. It's the very first thing he says. Having received this ministry, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so just to frame that as, a, as an exhortation, don't lose heart. In the work of evangelism, in the work of bearing witness to the kingdom, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in praying for unbelieving friends and family members. Don't grow weary in speaking the gospel to those who haven't yet believed. Don't grow weary in doing good to your neighbor for the sake of the kingdom. This is the good work to which we are called over and over don't grow weary. Well, why would we need an exhortation like this? Why would we need to be reminded not to grow weary, not to lose heart, unless we are prone to weariness and discouragement in this task? We need an exhortation like this because every gospel conversation doesn't necessarily end with a sinner repenting and trusting in Christ, right? You might Put yourself out there, get out of your comfort zone, and take the courageous step to begin a conversation about Jesus with somebody, and then you feel like the conversation meanders, and it ends, and you're like, what was even the point of that? I don't think any good came of that at all. I didn't like, feel, see any breakthrough, or I didn't see this person repent of his sins and name Jesus as his Lord and Savior. What's, what is even the point? Maybe it's discouragement that comes from a friend or family member that you've known for many, many years hasn't trusted Christ, and you're praying fervently, and you're speaking to them every time you see them, and there just doesn't seem to be any change. The needle's not moving at all. Perhaps you're prone to discouragement and, and growing weary in, in that work. If it were the case that every gospel conversation you ever had led to a sinner repenting and trusting Christ, we wouldn't need an exhortation like, don't lose heart, don't grow weary, because we would be like, dude, every time I open my mouth, amazing things are happening, let's go, right? It would be, it'd be easy. Raise your hand if you think sharing the gospel is easy. We all struggle with this. Pastors too, I don't know if you are aware of that. This is hard. It is very easy to grow weary in the work of evangelism and witness. And so we have this ministry by the mercy of God. And so we're encouraged here, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Despite 
temptations to discouragement. Since the ministry we have has been given us by God's mercy as a stewardship, just keep going. Right? It's his gospel. It's his work. It's his kingdom that we proclaim. It's not ourselves, he says later. We're, we're, pro- we're proclaiming Christ as Lord. We're not proclaiming ourselves. So just keep going. Pray to God for confidence and courage and stay on mission because we've been given this ministry by God himself. So number one, plain and simple, don't lose heart in your work of kingdom witness and evangelism. Don't lose heart. Number two, don't get creative with the gospel. Don't get creative with the gospel. Where does that come from? Look at verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I think this, don't get creative with the gospel, is an apt word for the church in our day. This day of movie-based sermon series and entertainment-filled church services where the ministry of the word is often remade in the image of marketing strategies and slimy sales pitch gospel presentations that seem to be aimed at closing the deal. We need to be reminded that the power of God unto salvation is not our tactics, our eloquence, or our creativity. It's the message of Christ crucified and raised for sinners. It's that simple. Now, to be clear, most of these efforts on the part of churches and even individual Christians in their evangelism are well-intentioned. I don't think any of, most of these people are going about this as a way of sort of trying to cunningly change the gospel or, or do some damage to God's word. We're usually looking to soften the gospel's rough edges, to make it maybe more palatable to our audience. Or we're hoping to make following Jesus seem really inviting, and so we sidestep the harder words of Jesus about self-sacrifice and carrying crosses, right? So probably generally well-intentioned efforts. But make no mistake, even well-intentioned tampering with God's word is still tampering, which Paul here calls disgraceful and underhanded. In other words, we're sort of being dishonest, right? If our gospel invitation is trust in Jesus and your life will be exciting or your troubles will go away or something, then we're actually misleading people in the name of Christ and his gospel. Jesus promised you'd have troubles, right? We're told elsewhere through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So our message cannot soft pedal the cost of discipleship what it costs us to leave behind our idols and the world and to follow Jesus. We must not avoid those things or soft-pedal them or sidestep them because we want the message to seem more appealing, more welcome to our audience. Rather, our strategy, our technique, is simply the open statement of the truth. 
the open statement of the truth, just a plain speaking of the gospel story is the very best strategy that you can ever embrace. And there are different methods and different techniques where you might, you might use a certain conversation starter and things like that, and I'm not against those things. But the point is, evangelism must include the gospel itself, the message of Christ for it to be evangelism, right? He said back in chapter 2, verse 17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. A salesman, that's what a peddler is, right? We're not door-to-door gospel salesmen. I'm not knocking going door-to-door and talking to people about Jesus. That may be something that, that God uses, and if you're drawn and compelled by the Spirit to go knock on people's doors and invite them to talk about the Lord, then may the Spirit empower you and may it bear good fruit. So I'm not knocking a particular strategy here. I'm just saying that that sort of, that door-to-door salesman ethos, right, where the goal is to say whatever I can to lower a person's defenses so that they'll buy what I'm selling. That's what salesmen are trying to do. And I am notoriously terrible at saying no to those people. I have literally signed contracts that I then had to call back later and sort of shamefully try to back out of just because I felt so bad saying no to this person. And he was so compelling in his argument. Wow, I guess I really do need this. Well, no, I probably really didn't. And man, it was expensive, all right? So we got to back out on that. So we are not salesmen of the gospel. That, that is not the approach that we ought to take. And if we believe that the power of God for salvation is the gospel, then our confidence will be in the plain telling of that gospel. That's what it must come down to. So let me take this opportunity while I'm talking about the importance of an open statement of the truth and of plain speaking of the gospel to plainly speak the truth of the gospel. And this would be a good uh, exercise for all of you to, to, to figure out a way to succinctly explain the gospel story. I think about it in these five categories, God, man, sin, Christ, and response. So here, here's a plain telling of the gospel. God, the creator of the world, is holy and righteous and just and good, and he made a beautiful world to reflect his glory, and he made human beings. He made mankind in his image, in his likeness, to have fellowship with him and to reflect his glory and to indeed extend his rule over the world that he had made. But man sinned. And in that sin, that disobedience, that rebellion against God, we've broken our fellowship with him and with each other. And now, because of that brokenness from our sin, we are under the just wrath of God, and we will one day face judgment at his throne. But he has made a way for us to be restored to him by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfectly obedient life and to die on the cross as our substitute and to rise again to eternal life in our place. And now he calls sinners to admit your sin, 
to believe upon the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus as your full payment and to confess Christ as your Lord now and forever. And eternal life will be yours. That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news that we proclaim. If you're hearing that now, whether it's for the first time or you've heard it before, but you're just now starting to see what it really means, you're just now starting to believe the truth of it, you're just now beginning to to see your own need for that mercy and grace through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, then this could be an opportunity for you to begin a new and eternal life with Christ. Even today, don't pass it up. Invite him to take your sins and to give you this eternal life. Speak with a pastor or another church member around you, and we would love to visit with you about that. Now, I should make a caveat here. I'm not against creativity, right? Definitely not slamming the arts or something. Just make sure that in our efforts to be creative in how we present and portray the goodness of God and the gospel of Christ, that all of those efforts and all of that creativity actually underscores the story in its fullness rather than obscuring it or distorting it in some way. That's what I mean by not getting creative with the gospel. We can be creative in our presentations and in our ministry and how we approach these things, but let's make sure our creativity does not change the core message of God's Word. Principle number three, don't forget our formidable foe. Don't forget our formidable foe. Look at verse four. Well, actually in verse three, he said, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, verse 4, the God of this world, who's that? That's not God, that's the devil, the one who is responsible for and presiding over the broken, wicked systems of this world, philosophies and and idolatries of this world. That's, That's Satan. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so now the the veil that blocked the people of Israel from seeing the glory of God on the face of Moses is used as an analogy here for what is happening in the souls of unbelievers day after day. There is a veil over their eyes that blinds them to the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. You see, it's no longer the face of Moses that's hidden, but it's the face of Christ. When people receive or hear God's word or or hear a gospel presentation and they regard it as nonsense or as foolishness and they do not believe it. What's happening is you are witnessing the effects of the blinding of Satan in their hearts. That veil that's over the, the minds of unbelievers is the work of Satan. He is actively scheming and working to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. He's working at that. He doesn't take a day off from that. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, we're told, uh, speaking of, of the devil, again, the prince of the power of the air, he's called the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Make no mistake, Satan is a disciple maker, right? He is making disciples. He is hard at work. And if we slack in our calling, we're going to be outworked by the devil. And he's gaining ground in the hearts and minds of people while we're busy building our own little kingdoms or whatever it is that we're doing. So we need to remember that there is a force in the world that's working even now against the kingdom of Christ. There is a power that seeks to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light that shines in the face of Christ through the message of the gospel. And we don't have within ourselves what it takes to overcome this spiritual blindness. There's no compelling, an argument compelling enough or presentation that's creative enough or winsome enough or any approach that's friendly and kind enough to overcome the spiritual blindness that is there, that veil that is over their eyes. It takes a work of God. Which leads us to the fourth and final principle that we'll look at today. Don't underestimate the power of God. Don't underestimate the power of God. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God we're talking about here is the one who created light when light didn't exist. The one who created the entire universe with words from nothing by his will. And it's this God who works and speaks through the gospel that he's entrusted to us. Don't forget the power of this life-giving, word-speaking, universe-creating God. And remember, God has done this for us, right? He said, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This has happened for us. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, a citizen in his kingdom, then he somehow, in his mercy and power, overcame your spiritual blindness. He overcame the darkness that covered and clouded your own soul. And his light penetrated that darkness, and he removed the veil from your eyes. And by his miraculous, sovereign, saving power, he brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. Praise God. If you're a believer, he's done this miracle in you. And so we know that he can do this in others too. We know that there is no spiritual blindness that is impenetrable by the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So as we go about the work of kingdom witness and telling the story of Jesus and inviting sinners to repent and trust in Christ, don't forget that we speak on behalf of an all-powerful, life-giving 
God. And I think that's probably the best final exhortation for this series. The best word of summary of any of all of the scenes of from Jesus' life or the apostles that we've looked at and the sort of strategies and ways that we approach sinners and how we think about our work of evangelism, I think the very best, the very central exhortation I could leave you with is this. Trust God. Have confidence in his gospel and speak the words of life. And he will save. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks and honor and praise for this gospel that you have entrusted to us. We praise you that you have drawn us to yourself, that you, by your spirit, removed the veil from our own eyes, that you overcame our spiritual blindness, that we might see the light of the gospel of Christ We thank you for that miracle in our lives, and we pray that you would do that miracle in the lives of many unbelievers even now. And we pray that you would give us courage and confidence in that gospel so that we might speak the words of life and see that darkness-penetrating, blindness-healing ministry of your spirit as you bring sinners to new life in Christ. Use us, we pray. Send us out by your power to bear witness for your kingdom. Grow our confidence in the simple, plain truth of the gospel. Grow our compassion and desire to see people come to faith in you. Grow us in boldness and courage that we would be willing to have uncomfortable conversations and put ourselves in situations that feel scary. But that we're willing to do that because we trust you and we love you and we know that you work through the plain words of simple, ordinary people like us. And we pray that you would be pleased to bring many sinners to repentance and to faith in Christ. That your kingdom would advance and grow and your church would be built as Jesus promised to do. Keep us on task for the sake of that kingdom and for the glory of Christ's name. And it's in that name that we now pray. Amen.